Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. The Meddlers by C.M. Cornbluth. This was first published in Science Fiction Adventure Magazine, or Science Fiction Adventures. Uh, this was a magazine edited by someone named Philip St. John, who was actually Lester Del Rey, who was publishing several magazines, or editing several magazines, and there was a bit of sloppiness um, in some of the details of these magazines, and he was eventually fired. Um, he was also writing a lot of stories for these um, magazines, uh, this uh, science fiction adventures, and um, I, I think he was writing for the others as well, but I can't be sure of that. Um, it's pretty, pretty great magazine, even though it is got some sloppy typos and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I think it's noteworthy because in the editorial introduction to the Meddlers. Um, uh, the editor says, we love Cyril Cornbluth. We love his agent too. <laughs> I think that's because they share an agent or maybe he is the agent. I don't know. Uh, Actually, but, I, I think that Frederick Pohl is the agent. Ah, that makes sense. But in the final analysis, we print this only because we love our fellow editors too much to subject them to receiving stories like this without the proper warning, uh, which is a, a kind of a meta it doesn't really tell you anything about the story itself, right? Which is yeah. kind of unusual. But, yeah, I, I don't. It doesn't even make sense to me. But maybe he's talking to himself. You know, I, you you didn't mention, but I'm I'm sure you know that the serial that's concluded in this issue of Science Fiction Adventures magazine is by Eric Von Lin, A.K.A. Lester <laughs> Del Rey. In fact, I just did a podcast on that, and. Um, I still like it, even though it feels like a rushed story. One of the one of the things I I'm re recalling now is that um, the serial conclusion here is I think it's part four. It was originally planned to be three parts, <laughs> and the final part in here uh, was incredibly long compared to the rest of it. So I I think he was writing it on the fly while editing this magazine and other ones. Uh, I think it was four total for um, this publisher. Well, these were the days when you were lucky in a pulp publication if you got a penny a word. You know, this is also the height. 1953 is, I think, it's it's just barely, looking at September 1953, it's the, it's the height, absolute, the pinnacle of the number of science fiction magazines. Uh, 1954, there's still, still pretty much as many, and then... At the end of 1954, it begins a nosedive. The number of science fiction magazines reduced. I don't know that the number of readers reduced, but the the flourishing of of new science fiction magazines, including this one, this is only issue six, um, is is at this point. It's at the apex, and I just I find it really interesting because well, actually, there's a reason for that. What's what's the reason? The American News Company um, was the distributor of these magazines. Uh, it, it had effectively a distribution, a national distribution monopoly. Um, I've actually published about this. Uh, and 
there were regional distributing companies. But what would happen if, say, something, a magazine were published, say, in Boston, um, they'd turn over their print run to the American News Company. The American News Company would divide it, say, into 10 different um, packages, huge packages, and send them off to their different regions, and they would get distributed nationally. There was no other competitive national distributor of periodicals. Mm. In 1952, a Wall Street conglomerate realized something. You see, the American News Company was formed and really began to become strong right during the American Civil War. People wanted news. And so they bought up warehousing space near the railheads of different large towns all over the country so they could move their print runs that they subdivided. Um, They were jobbers, in other words, um, to those warehouses. And they would gather the print runs from different magazines, and then they would distribute them locally so that whoever sold periodicals could sell a dozen different periodicals, all delivered to them by the American News Company, but gathered for them from the American News Company from different sources. As the country grew, as the cities grew, those railroad stations began to be not on the outskirts of town, but in thriving metropolitan areas. And this company realized, this conglomerate realized that the land value of the warehouses, were it converted to money, could be invested and get a larger return than the news company. So they bought the company and they sold it off piece by piece. When the American News Company was bought, there were 38 monthly periodicals in the science fiction field. By the end of the 1950s, there were four. Mm-hmm. But what else happened simultaneously? In 1952, Betty and Ian Ballantyne began publishing paperback originals. Prior to that, with the exception of a few things like Penguin Books that didn't really deal in science fiction – Books would be published, that is novel-length books, would be published in hardback and then later reprinted for a less expensive market um, in paperbacks. Betty and Ian Ballantyne started um, publishing paperback originals, and they started with science fiction. So what happened in the course of the 1950s is that the, the dominant medium for publishing science fiction switched from magazines to novels. The great thing about a novel for a corner newsstand is that it doesn't have a sell-by date. This science fiction adventures magazine of September 1953 was distributed in in August. September 53 is the sell-by date. Mm -hmm. Um, Novels don't come with sell-by dates. And so it became much easier for newsstand owners to make a living because they didn't have to return the stuff so often and the publishers didn't have to destroy it. So the entire field changed in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And it had absolutely very little to do with the quality of the stuff, I guess. It was, or it, maybe it, it did, but. Well, you know, it, it had some, it began to have some changes in the quality of the stuff, but it also led to some other interesting publication. The, the idea of the fix up. Mm. where you take a bunch of different stories, put them together, and then turn them into a novel. That really arose at this point. 
Right. But we have. So I'm sorry, I didn't know that would come up. But this 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 really is a fascinating uh, bit of history of the interrelation between finance, technology and aesthetic form. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing this at a high point. Uh, They're rushing to fill all of these magazines, you know, 38 monthlies. Um, And so Lester Del Rey is working his took us off basically for a penny a word. I, I, I also like that this, this is, it's really good science fiction and also, uh, well, maybe you should just read it for us and then, then we can discuss it. Okay. This is by CM Kornbluth, a wonderful writer who died of a heart attack shoveling snow in Levittown when he was 35. Huh, something to do with the weather. Yes, indeed. The Meddlers by Cyril M. Kornbluth. Reeve Marcon, Continental Weather Chief, swore one of his affected archaic oaths as his pocket transceiver beeped. By my lousy halidum, he muttered, turning the signal off and putting the pint-sized set to his face. How's that again, Chief? asked the puzzled voice of his assistant, moron slob. I didn't mean you, slob, Marcon snapped. Go ahead. What is... So by Our Lady important that I must be dragged from the few pitiful hours of leisure I'm allowed. Meddling, Moron Slob said in a voice of deepest gloom. Ding, bust the carn-sarned villains, Markon shrieked. I'll be right down. He cast a bilious eye over the workshop where he had hoped to relax over the month end, using his hands, forgetting the wild complexities of modern life while he puttered with his Betatron planer, his compact little thermonuclear forming reactor, and transmutron. I'll meddle them, he growled, and stepped through his transmitter. There were wild screeches around him. I'm sorry, ladies, he yelled. It was completely, completely. One of the ladies hit him with a chair. He abandoned explanations and ducked back through the transmitter with a rapidly swelling eye. Through the other, he read the setting on the transmitter frame. His wives' athletic club, that's wives, not wife's, Mm. athletic club, as he had suspected, nor had they bothered to clear the setting after using the transmitter. Lollygagging trumpets, he muttered, setting his office combination on the frame and stepping through. Moron slob tactfully avoided staring at the discolored eye. Glad you're here, Chief, he burbled. Somebody seems to have gimmicked up a private tractor beam in the Mojave area, and they're pulling in rain clouds assigned to the Rio Grande I, <laughs> I mean, Rio Grande Valley. Reeve Marcon glared at him and decided to let it pass. Triangulate for it, he said. Set up the unilateral transmitter. We'll burst in and catch them wet-handed. He went to his private office and computed while the mechanical work was being done outside. A moderately efficient tractor beam, however haywire, could pull down the five acre feet of water a day. A, the Rio Grande was a top priority area, drawing an allotment of 80 acre feet for the growing season, plus sun ships as needed. Plancom had decided that what the continent needed was natural citrus and that Rio Grande was the area to supply it lowest priority for the current season had been assigned to the Idaho turnip acreage. He could divert rainfall from Idaho to Rio Grande. If that wasn't enough, he could seize the precipitation quota of Aspen Recreational with no difficulty since three Planka members 
had broken respectively a leg, a pelvis, and seven ribs on Aspen's beginner's ski trail. Slob told him, Chief, we're on it and the transmitter's set up, Reef Markon said. Take a visual first. Those whittled jerks aren't going to booby-trap me. He watched as a camera was thrust through the transmitter, exposed and snatched back in a thousandth of a second. The plate showed an improvised-looking tractor beam generator surrounded by three rustic types in bowler hats and kilts. They obviously hadn't noticed the split-second appearance of the camera, and they obviously were unarmed. I'm going in, Reeve Marcon said, cold and courageous. Slob, arm yourself and bring me a dazzle gun. In two minutes... The weapons had been signed out of the arsenal. Reef Markon and Moron Slob walked steadily through the transmitter, guns at the ready. To the astounded, gaping farmers, Reef Markon said, You're under arrest for meddling. Step through this, the rustic stopped gaping and went into action. One of them began ripping at the generator, trying to destroy evidence. The other uncorked an uppercut at Slob, who intercepted it neatly with his chin. Reeve Marcon shut his eyes and pulled the trigger of the dazzle gun. When he opened his eyes, both farmers and his assistant were lying limply on the floor. Puffing a good deal, he pitched one, pitched them one by one through the invisible portal of the unilateral transmitter. He surveyed the generator, decided it would do as evidence, and pitched it through also before he stepped back into the Continental Weather Office himself. When the farmers had recovered a matter of 20 minutes or so, he tried to interrogate them but got nowhere. Don't you realize, he asked silkily, that there are regular channels through which you can petition for heavier rainfall or a changed barometric pressure or more sunlight hours? Don't you realize that you're disrupting continental economy when you try to freelance? They were sullen and silent only muttering something about their spinach crop needing more water than the damn bureaucrats realized. Take them away, Reeve Marcon sighed to his assistant. And Slob did. But Slob rushed back with a new and alarming advisory. Chief, he said, somebody on Long Island seeding clouds without a license. The cut purse crumb, Reeve Marcon snarled. Two in a row. He leaned back wearily for a moment. By cracky slob, he said, you'd think people would speak up and let us know if they think they've been unjustly treated by PlanCom. You'd think they'd tell us instead of haywiring their rise in private and screwing the works. Slob mumbled sympathetically and Reef Marcon voiced the ancient complaint of his department. The trouble with this job is... Everybody does things about the weather, but nobody talks about it. <laughs> I didn't see it coming when I first read it. <laughs> but now I, now I think the, uh, the editorial introduction makes sense. I didn't understand it. Uh, uh, what attracted me to this story was I, I was processing the magazine and I said, Oh, a Cyril M. Kornbluth story. That's great. And it's short. I'm going to read it. And I read it. And then I'm like, oh, uh, you know, this other people would do with this. Um, and maybe this is what uh, Frederick, Frederick Pohl was always seeing in Cornbluth stuff is that he's got enough. He's got enough world building here. Most science fiction writers would write, you know, this is a series, not just a novel. Right. And what he throws away for this joke story 
<laughs> is so, you know, sparky. It's just full of... I didn't even notice that. You you pointed it out. It is wives. Yeah. Isn't that great? It's Yeah, uh, yeah. He's got multiple wives. He's got multiple there's, wives. There's just a tiny of, little detail. Yeah. Oh, he does. He, he is great at world building. There's a kind of casual anti-feminism here. Um, but it's it's buried within linguistic invention, mm-hmm. right? It's his it's his wives' athletic club, mm-hmm. um, as he had suspected. This is just like you know. Of course, women are always messing things up. Mm-hmm. Nor had they bothered to clear the setting after using the transmitter, and then he calls them lollygagging trumpets, <laughs> not strumpets, <laughs> right? So so women are lazy, and they are loud. <laughs> they're not strumpets and it's not sexual they're trumpets I think and that's just a husband and wife thing rather than necess- I mean he's got multiple yeah, it's, 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 I, 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 I thought no, I, don't, I don't think so I think that uh, that the words are incredibly carefully used for example um, this guy's name is Reeve Marcon mm-hmm. right? so a Reeve spelled differently is With an a e on the end instead of what? Yeah, this one's spelled R E E V, whereas uh, normally it's R E E V, right? Or, sorry, R E E V E. Or it's an R I E V E. One is a robber and one is a local administrative official. And I think this is meant to allude to the the different spelling that would be a local administrative official. Yeah. But when he complains about people, he calls one of his complaints is that they are whittles. Um, mm. right. Um, he calls them whittled. Yeah. Yes. Jerks. Take a visual first. Those whittled jerks aren't going to booby trap me. Whittled seems like a uh, portmanteau of whittle and cuckold. A whittle is someone who is casually acquiescent to his wife's infidelity. Whereas a cuckold is somebody who is unknowingly mm losing his wife's sexual uh, access to someone else or sharing it unwittingly mm-hmm. with someone else. Uh, so that that's a second use of something that has a lot to do with male-female relations and whether a man is in charge or not. I think that there's something going on in the 1950s. Which, oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, and and this, this, this is quite casual about it. It accepts it. Uh, lollygagging trumpets, it may be that it's just this guy and his wives, but it may also be that there is a recognition on Kornbluth's part that men really are treating women as if they're just objects. And uh, someone who doesn't pay attention to keeping his own objects um, in order is a fool. So that's the part that I think is Reeve Marcon. I think the story itself actually recognizes that women shouldn't be treated that way. Well, a- what do you make of Moron Slob? Because <laughs> it's not a great name if you if your child's name his last name is going to be Slob. You're the Slob family. You yeah. D- decide to name him Moron. I I was just like this is hilarious. It's 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 just funny. <laughs> so it, Moron Slob seems entirely competent. He does seem competent. Moron, of course, means uh, dull. Mm-hmm. 
You know, so a sophomore is a a wise dullard. Um, so it means dull and slob, of course, spelled with one D instead of two, the way it is here, is somebody who is careless. And it turns out that this guy, moron slob, is perhaps a little careless. Um, he does, we are told, neatly intercept a thrown punch with his chin. So <laughs> he's not the uh, most agile fellow one could have. Um, I really do think but they that both get they both get knocked around, right? Oh and, yes, he, and he, uh, uh, in the uh, eye. I, I think it's also important to point out that Reeve Marcon blames his wives for not resetting the the transmitter. Which th- this story is so full of invention and technology, um, we've got to assume that it's deep, deep into the future here. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, there's a code on the door, so he, he's the one who failed to address the address of where he was going to transmit himself, right? He could have seen that it was not set properly. I agree. I think that, uh, you know, Fred Pohl um, has suggested, and as far as I know, this is the case, um, that Cyril Kornbluth was born, was was not given a middle name at birth, and that the M stands for nothing, but in fact, the, uh, the initial of his wife's maiden surname that it's actually in honor of her so there's an extra m floating around hmm. i would point out to you that reeve marcon <laughs> if the extra m is removed this local administrator is an archon mm. which is you know the, the the ruler of things and he does have his comeuppance uh, but he also continues to set the weather for the entire world Oh, uh, for the continent. He's he's the continental. I'm sorry, for the, the continent. He's the continental archon. Yes. Um. Uh, uh, there, there's so many great language details in here that uh, I I want to you uh, go through them. But um, uh, the first one that where it really struck me is in the final paragraph of the first column on the first page, where it reads, "He cast a bilious eye over the workshop." Uh, my eyes don't <laughs> don't get bilious, but I can. Um, uh, it, 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 it means barfy, basically. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, it, it, I, I'm sorry. <clears throat> no. To to, ha- to to be bilious means to. It comes from the old idea of the body being your character having to do with your humors. And there's yellow bile and black sure. bile. So someone who's bilious has an excess of that humor. And it's either angry or depressed. So he cast a depressed eye over the workshop where he had hoped to relax over the month end. Right. So uh, it's just, you know, you know, you have a bilious attitude perhaps, but um, if a bilious mouth would make more sense, especially given he's angry, right, at this point. Um, I just think it's, it's a bit of play. And then that play continues in the rest of the sentence where you, you mentioned it, the month end. So, what happened at the weekend? <laughs> exactly. Either either the weekend has been eliminated, and now we only have month ends, or maybe month end is an extra holiday. We don't know. It's just transformed language. That the, the phrase that always rings rings in my mind while I'm reading this story. Um, it, it, the sentence continues. He cast a bilious eye over the workshop where he had hoped to relax over the month end using his hands, forgetting the wild complexities of modern life, while he puttered with his Betatron planer, the compact little thermonuclear forming reactor, and transmutron. So, yeah. 
What's he going to do? Oh, I'm just going to work on my uh, <laughs> Betatron planer, which I don't know what that does, <laughs> but a thermonuclear forming reactor. Um, this this future so so um, futuristic that uh, you know we don't. I was thinking. I was explaining this with my students. You don't need roads because everything goes through trans transmitters. Um, he has a cell phone, essentially, right? That he gets yeah. uh, a ring. It's, it's described as a pint-sized set, a trans uh, pocket transceiver, um, and then uh, they can control the weather. And so, when we finally meet some other characters, other than the ladies who we don't really actually get to meet, um, they are dressed. The farmers are dressed in. Bowler hats and kilts <laughs> in the right. middle of, of the southwestern United States for some reason, um, and they don't really get much of a uh, uh, dis, you know <laughs> they don't get much to say. They mutter um, and and then he makes his his joke, uh, which is the uh, eternal complaint of his department. The trouble with the job is everybody does things about the weather, but nobody talks about it. Um, uh, it's it's that's why this is such a a cool story. He's sparking all of this stuff around what is essentially a tiny little joke play. I'd like to push it further, if I may, mm-hmm. Jesse. I think it is. I think I think people can read it and they can enjoy the joke, and I do, and you did. But I think that this use of transformed language and neologism is, in fact, a persistent. Um, concern for Kornbluth in all of his work, and well, not all of it, but most of his work. Um, for example, in Gravy Planet, mm-hmm. which came the Space Merchants, which is published at the same time. It was published in 1952 serially, and then 1953 as a novel, Poland Kornbluth. Um, there is a future world in which uh, advertising companies are the apex of a vertical. Uh, in vertically integrated monopolies and uh, or conglomerates, I should say. And there is someone we're told that she came from a deeply moral sales fearing. Right, right, right. Right. Now, what we have here is we'll burst in and catch them wet handed. Right. Well, OK. The expression will burst in and catch them red handed. It turns out to come from Scotland um, in the 16th century, I think. Um in which it was first used of poachers. So some you'd find them red-handed, meaning they had on their hands the blood of the animals they had taken illegally. Mm-hmm. Here we'll burst in and catch them wet-handed, meaning they will have on their hands the rain that they had gotten illegally. What's going on in this, uh, th- there's all kinds of wonderful little things. For instance, uh, the political satire, he doesn't have to worry about taking... Uh, rain from the Aspen recreational area because they won't need snow because the powerful people, that is the <laughs> the, the plan commembers, um, had broken their leg, pelvis, and seven ribs, the three of them, on the beginner's ski trail. So politicians are terrible. Um, they are ineffective. But they're the only ones you really have to worry about when you move things around. The, the, the satire, in other words, is telling us something about the interaction between the social system and the technological system, the language that's being used, the neologisms and the transformed language says, well, that was then, 
it's transformed red-handed into wet-handed. And what he's done at the end is given us, yes, it's a joke, but he's transformed the entire, the entire phrase. The trouble with this job is everybody says things about the weather, but nobody does, nobody talks about it, uh, but nobody does anything about it. He's changed it and reversed it. What I think this story does at a deep level is point out that our language is shaped by the interaction of our technology and society. It's not just that our language helps form our society, but our society is formed by technology. And so the language comes out of this this coalescence of the two, this amalgamation of the interaction of the two. That's really a pretty darn interesting viewpoint. Is it developed at length? No, but it's repeated in this story very vividly and in work after work by Kornbluth. Mm -hmm. It's his persistent interest in the nature of language. And we see that even in the way he treats anti-feminism as with the word withhold being used for people who are un, who are disrespected? Uh, I uh, there's a one central one that I think I didn't resolve in my own mind. I I, I went through it with my students. Um, it's the name of the thing that they're running, and you call them politicians. I think they're more of like bureaucrats, administrators. You're probably right. You're probably uh, right. But the the it is it, it really isn't explained. It says PlanCom, so P L A N C O M. I thought this, and then later on it says Planco members, which I think is the administrators or whatever. Um, so that could be planet economy, or it could be planned economy, or it could be planned community, right? It doesn't. It doesn't or the, say or the planning commission or, or the pl- exactly. Yeah. Um, and and that idea you've got these, you know, these acronyms, these made-up words, everybody just wanders around assuming that everything is exactly as it was, right? We all know, but we're born into these things. And I think with a story like this, he is pointing out exactly that issue, that we don't see the power of language. And and you're right to point to Gravy Planet, a.k.a. uh, the Space Merchants, because it is a savage satire of then United States and modern United States um, political systems and advertising. Oh, he's he's so sharp. Oh, indeed. And advertising there, as I say, is the apex um, industry for these vertical uh, conglomerates, um, vertical enterprises. Advertising has to do with words. Mm-hmm. It's not just that that Kornbluth likes a style and applies it to one thing or another. In his greatest works, that style and the theme, in fact, reinforce each other to make for very, very powerful uh, ideas. So for me, at least, now having had uh, this initial discussion with you, this last line of the meddlers – the trouble with this job is everybody does things about the weather, but nobody talks about it. That's like a potential catchphrase for you and me to throw back and forth <laughs> to each other as we think about other things and other stories and other uses of language. He's not just making a, a silly pun. He's telling us something important. 
because when you talk about language and how people use it, it's because they use it in a living society that there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.